Reading comes from Luke 10, 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levi, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers, he said, the one who showed him mercy? And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. How y'all doing? Good. It's like talking to my daughter when I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, good. All right, so it is good to be with you all today. I'm happy to be able to share God's word with you. It has been a minute since I was last up here, November, I think, if memory serves correctly. Back on that particular Sunday, which is the end of our sabbatical series where we had centered on God's heart for the world, we zeroed in on the challenge of moving from spiritual milk to spiritual meat, from the basics of our faith to the tough stuff. Does this sound vaguely familiar to anybody? Okay, that's fine. (laughs) It it was November. It was a long time ago. It's all right. Part of that tough stuff is the personal spiritual growth which takes place when we, as it says in Philippians 2.12, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's my desire that the growth that Paul encouraged the church at Philippi to embrace happens for us as well. That fear and trembling can take place for a variety of reasons in a variety of ways. Maybe you are being challenged with a difficult passage of Scripture. Um, Maybe you are just, you're personally silently struggling to continue to trust God because you're constantly hearing news of, of tough stuff like war and school shootings and various scandals, and you're like, is God there? What do, how do I press on? We're often tempted to brush aside the tough stuff instead of chewing on the spiritual meat. I might say, eh, I'll read my Bible later. Or, nah, that, that stuff, that's, that's someone else's problem. But if we do that, we are in danger of missing out on what the Holy Spirit is telling us. So whether the issue you're wrestling with is current events, maybe figuring out how to demonstrate Jesus to your weird neighbor, or diving into today's, into today's passage, I promise you it's worth it 
It is so worth it to chew on the tough stuff. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will guide us as we move forward this morning. That through your Holy Spirit you will speak to us, that you will reveal your heart to us. That as we look at your word, that we will grow, that we will be challenged, and that after today that we will truly be changed. In your holy name, amen. This morning, we are going to be discussing faith and works. And you might be silently screaming, Oh no, why? It is a tough topic, but there's certain themes which are talked about over and over and over and over again in the scriptures. And this is one of them. In God's love to letter, in his love letter to creation, the themes of faith and love and personal choices and behavior are clearly communicated as being important to the Almighty, which means that because these topics are important to him, they deserve to be discussed and studied and wrestled with repeatedly as we seek to mature in our faith. And personally, I love the challenge of putting our faith into action, also known as the application of theology or applied theology. It's one of the topics I am most passionate about, having grown up in the church where I learned to be very, very, very good at talking the talk. It was the realization that God was much more interested in me walking with him, which helped pull me out of a a deconstructionist spiritual funk of my late teens and early 20s. Our central passage today is James 2, 14 through 26. So go ahead and turn there, otherwise it will also be on the screen. As you do that, you might be thinking, hey, that's not Hebrews. You're right, and I'm proud of you for paying attention. Don't worry, though, James is still part of the Bible, and uh, our topic, it does tie into Hebrews a little bit later, so Hebrews will make a guest appearance. This section of James 2 It is a famous passage. You more than likely have looked at it before, and if you haven't, then you are in for a treat because it is fun. And I say fun because Christians tend to argue about it. It makes us uncomfortable, but we're going to bring on that discomfort. Okay, let's read together. James chapter 2, 14 is where we'll start. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. Even the demons believe, though, and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute 
justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. There's a lot there. But we're going to chew on it one bite at a time. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? Now, immediately, what might come to your mind from deep in your gut is an intense, visceral, maybe even angry, nope, 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 I am saved through faith in Jesus alone, not by works, lest anyone should boast. And you know that someone is angry when they switch over to the king's English, and we're just like, ye, thou, thine. That is to say, be steady. Stay steady, my friends. We're going to loop back to this particular issue because it is, it is a valid point, okay? But first, let's examine what arguments James uses to support this big theological statement. Like, he's made a huge claim, so we're going to see how he backs that up first, and then we'll loop back to how it ties into that passage from Ephesians. So first, he uses a hypothetical example in verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, this specific type of argument is called a diatribe. And the topic would have been understood by the original audience because it was centered on them. He was using them as the example. Remember, in those days, the church functioned as a very tight-knit community. Okay? The first Christians were mainly Jewish converts, which means that many of them would have been ostracized from their family and friends. The, the Christian community then was their family. It was everything. It was these new believers who we read about in Acts 2, 44-47, who are described as holding everything in common. It says that they sold their possessions and belongings and distributed the proceeds to all who had need. They would go to the temple together and share meals in each other's homes. They took care of each other when they were hungry or when they had need of basic necessities. In his commentary on the book, theologian Peter David says that this example offered by James was crass. It would have shocked many who were accustomed to the Old Testament prophets and the application of the laws of charity in late Judaism. It was clear that such a person could not have heard the teaching of the community. Okay, so crass and shocked. This means that James is purposefully stirring up his readers. Okay, he is purposefully trying to make them tense up. In the Jared paraphrase version, it would say something like, if you came across a fellow Christian who had nothing but old, torn clothing and was starving, you wouldn't say hi, have a good day, without offering them clean clothes and a hot meal, would you? Again, this use of, a, of this type of hypothetical question was a way of teaching that was familiar to this audience. It was quite common. It was, it was a straw man argument, which was supposed to cause the reader to immediately push back due to it being stupid, vulgar. Uh, like this what-if idea would make no sense. Okay? That, that's my brother. That's my sister. Of course I would help them, James. Like, that's what family does. Why would you suggest such a thing? And this reaction, then, provides James with the, the opening in verse 17 to say, so also, faith by itself, 
if it does not have works, is dead. Ah, says the reader. Yes, now this makes sense, because just like my love for my faith community is proven by us taking care of each other, faith is proven by works. Faith without works is Wait, hold up. What? And then they would, they would sort of get there, and then James doesn't linger, because he knows that there's going to be pushback. Okay? He knows that while some will understand, others will try to argue and make excuses. Okay? They'll say things like, hey, 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 we're all in this, in this together. We're family. Some of us are good at that works thing. But me, I'm good at that faith thing. We, we'll combine our gifts. We, you have faith. I have works. It's okay, James. But he flips it around with the last half of verse 18. Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. <clears throat> He's saying that it can't be done. No matter how you look at it, faith and works, they can't be separated. A Christian can't have faith without works, nor can they have works without faith. This isn't a you have your gift, I have my gift type of thing. In the same way, your love for your church family, it can't exist without caring for each other. Faith can't exist without works. This is the crux of his whole argument, okay? And still, he doesn't slow down, because next is verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well, but even demons believe and shudder. This is a response to someone who might argue, hey, at least I have faith. I mean, back off. I believe in, in God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. Like, God is one. Yeah, my, my faith is good enough. Back off, James. Stop telling me to have works. But then cue James. You believe in the Trinity. Good job. Bare minimum. Even the demons, the rebels against God, believe that he is three in one, and they behave like it. Meanwhile, you're sitting there trying to minimize the demands of the gospel. He is calling them out, comparing them to demons. He's calling out Christians. This is big, okay? The people who James is preemptively addressing, they know facts about theology, they're fellow Christians. They live together. They gather together. They worship together. Like they, they discuss Jesus' teachings together. Okay? But they aren't applying that theology in their lives. They're not allowing it to change them. How y'all doing? Good so far? Cool. So far, we've had this huge, huge theological statement which was defended with a, a hypothetical straw man argument followed by an argument against those who might claim that, that works isn't their gift, and then against those who claim that, well, having faith is better than having nothing at all, and that's just in the first six verses. Okay, so it's worth pausing here to talk about who this guy was. Like, what gives him the right to say such things? Like, some would really really prefer that this be a random dude's opinion written way later, okay? It's, it's just a thing, and he's pretending to be James, okay? It's, it would be so much easier if this could be ignored, okay? Especially by those who see these verses as an affront to their understanding of Ephesians 2. But like I said, 
Uh, we'll, we'll tackle that in, the, in a little bit. But the author here is not some motivational speaker. He's not someone disguised as the pastor. He is advocating for how to truly follow Jesus. So I've got to believe that this author, that he, that he knew what Jesus taught, that he knew and understood the implications. Now, traditionally, as far back as the third century, it's been accepted that the author of this book was James the Just, a half-brother of Jesus Christ. And that was written around 55 to 65 AD. I've examined some of the alternative arguments from various biblical scholars, but eh, I find them lacking, honestly. Okay? I, I'm confident in accepting that this was indeed written by James, the brother of Jesus. So, no, it was not written by a lesser-known individual hundreds of years later, just under a pen name of James, or one of the other James who were part of the core 12 disciples, either the son of Zebedee or the son of Alphaeus. James the Just is the most likely candidate for as to who wrote this book. There is minimal mention of him previously, so what most likely happened is he became a believer after the crucifixion and resurrection. But even without being part of the original 12 disciples, my thinking, and this is, this is Jared's opinion here, um, logically, Jesus' teachings would have been known by his half-brother. Like, brother, aware of what Jesus said. It makes sense. Okay? Alongside that, James, he was leading the church in Jerusalem in the first century, and as we read in Acts 15, he knew the apostles well, which means that James the Just can be trusted to make theological claims which are in line with the gospel and the whole of Scripture. So when he says in verse 19 that the demons know just as much about God as his Christian audience, and that the difference is that they actually respond accordingly, unlike his readers, that's a pretty big diss coming from someone who knows what he's talking about and someone who can be trusted. Okay? We should take that seriously. Now, for some further proof of James' wisdom and understanding, we need to only examine some of the parallels that he has with the teachings of Jesus. For example, throughout the book, there are references to the Sermon on the Mount. Over in Matthew 5, 7, the section known as the Beatitudes, Jesus declared, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Note that Jesus didn't say, Blessed are those who know about the theory of mercy and like to think about it. He didn't say, Blessed are those who like the idea of others showing mercy. No. Merciful is the descriptor. It's the title. Blessed are those who show mercy. Blessed are those whose actions demonstrate mercy. Blessed are those who can be defined by their mercy. Blessed are the merciful. This is a clear important thing that our Savior talked about, okay? James parallels this in verse 13, right before our main section, where he says, for judgment is without mercy to those, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And these references happen multiple times, like just throughout the book of, ooh, that seems to be in line with Sermon on the Mount. Interesting. My point here is that James' statement in verse 17, that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead— is not anti-Jesus. It is not contrary to the gospel. 
It is not an error that somehow slipped in and nobody ever figured it out till now. Okay? This claim, as disruptive as it may be to you individually, is rooted in proper Christ-centered theology. It is applied theology. It is in line with how we are called to be merciful and not just talk about mercy. Okay? James is saying, prove that you have faith by your actions, otherwise your faith might as well not exist. Now, I know this is a big claim. It is difficult to accept, even upsetting to some. In these first six verses, not only is he saying that faith in the absence of proper behavior counts for nothing, but he's also saying in verse 19 that belief in and of itself is nothing special. And that really ruffles some feathers. Okay? We are so used to focusing on just a profession of faith. Okay? We are so used to being like, just say the words. Okay? Just, just ask Jesus into your heart, and, and then you're good. We are so used to this idea that it just happens once, and it's just like this verbal thing, and nothing else matters afterwards. Okay? But according to James, that's not enough. Statements like, I believe in the Trinity— and I believe that Jesus was a real person in history. And I believe that God created everything. These are good. These are true statements. But even the demons believe certain truths about God, and they're still in rebellion against him. Okay, so why would we think that a simple faith statement is enough to prove that we are alive in Christ Jesus instead of still dead in our sins? Simple faith statements are not enough, according to James. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, James could have left it here. He could have moved on to the next section, which talks about being mindful of how we speak. After all, he has certainly made a compelling argument for the importance of having actions that support one's faith so far, but instead he doubles down. He gives a couple of examples from the Old Testament. And first, he's going to turn our attention to Abraham. So again, let's read verses 20 through 24 which say, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. Now, this is in reference to what took place in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Certainly a well-known story to us. There's movies and TV shows and flannel graphs and all sorts of stuff. Okay? We talk about this story in, in church a lot. Okay? Um, but even more so, this was familiar to his primarily Jewish Christian audience. This was their history. So by going back to Father Abraham... He's appealing to their Jewish heritage. He's saying, hey, I'm not nuts. I'm not crazy. Faith without works is dead. Look at Abraham. His example will back me up. Okay? He's going right to the beginning. Be like, see? Uh. Okay? Yeah, I think we have time. Let's read that account from Genesis. Genesis 22, 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, 
saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they, both, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. It is one thing to have faith. It is quite another to have faith and works to prove said faith. And the Bible is full of individuals who do that very thing. A handful are found in Hebrews 11, which is the famous faith chapter of the Bible. Pastor Jeff is going to be leading us through that in the coming weeks, but I want to give you a sneak peek, that guest appearance I mentioned earlier. So turn to Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed God's promise that from him would come a great nation. Even though he and Sarah were way too old to have a child, Isaac ended up being born to them in their old age. And God made it clear that it was through Isaac that his promise would come to fulfillment. His promise was absolute. Okay? Abraham believed this so completely. His faith was so strong that he was willing to sacrifice his son when asked. He trusted that since God had made a promise about Isaac that God would have to do something to allow Isaac to remain the heir, even if that meant bringing him back to life. Abraham's faith would have counted for nothing if instead he had gone, I believe Isaac is, you know, the one who's promised. I mean, I'm old and there he is, but God's not going to follow through on using him to continue my lineage, not if, not if I sacrifice him. That's a bridge too far for me. If Abraham had done that, his faith counts for nothing, okay? But he had the works to back up the faith. 
Jump back over to James. He now has his readers on the ropes. Okay? Again, he could be done. He has said enough to get his point across. He has had solid arguments. He has addressed the common pushbacks that, that his readers would have. He's even brought in Abraham, but he keeps going. Okay? Just so that we can be certain of how important this is. In verse 25, he says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. As I mentioned back in our sabbatical series, Rahab, she betrayed her own people. Okay? She joined Israel because of her belief that Yahweh was the one true God. This is the work of someone who truly has faith. Her actions ended up saving her and her family. Okay? It led to her being included in the genealogy of Jesus. That would not have happened had she simply met the spies and been like, yeah, your God seems pretty cool. I mean, like, there's the whole Egypt thing that I heard about, but you know, I'm going to hang back here. I'm going to see what happens. You guys do you. No. She was just like, yeah, okay, I believe. Betrayed her people. Okay? Help the spies. Finally, in verse 26, we read this simple conclusion from James. Verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This husk does not continue to live after the spirit leaves. There is a difference between death and taking a nap. This verse, it reminds me of my parents' reassurance to me, to my young self, that it was okay to go up to an open casket at a funeral because that individual was gone because I was not about to walk over there. It's like, mm-mm-mm. But they pulled me aside. Like, it's okay. That particular individual who I had known from church was no longer there. They had gone to be with Jesus. Okay? All that remained was the body which was dead. Likewise, James says, if you remove works from faith, then that faith lays there like a dead body. Okay? If, if it doesn't have works, it is not functioning. It is not living anymore. There is a difference between healthy living and not. And clearly everybody can understand, like, death, sleeping. Got it, James. Now, we've spent the majority of this morning breaking down this passage in James 2. And when I started, I mentioned how some might get upset and wish to counter with the passage from Paul in Ephesians 2, which says that we are saved by grace, al- grace alone, lest ye should boast. Okay? I told you that we'd loop back, so let's tackle it now. In James 2, we have verses 14, 17, 20, 24, and 26, which all make this repeated claim that faith without works, is no good, dead, useless, incomplete, dead. But Paul, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It does kind of feel like these two sections of Scripture are talking about the same thing, that they might even contradict. I mean, after all, they both have the word works 
in it. And as we know, if two verses have the same word, they're clearly talking about the same thing. That was sarcasm. But there is a very, very, very important difference between these passages. The theologian Albert Barnes says this in his notes. It should be observed that the standpoint from which the apostle views this subject is not before a man is converted, inquiring in what way he may be justified before God, or on what ground his sins may be forgiven, but is after a man is converted, showing that that faith can have no value which is not followed by good works. That is, that it is not real faith, and that good works are necessary if a man would have evidence that he is justified. If you examine both the text in Ephesians 2 and James 2, you will hopefully see how they complement each other, not contradict. Okay, Paul, he is focused on the person before salvation. He is explaining what salvation is and like where it comes from. But James, he is focused on the one who is already a believer. He is not calling into question where our salvation comes from, but rather the effect that salvation has or has not had on a believer's life. Okay? The, the, the grace we are saved through. Sorry, no. By grace, we are saved through faith. There is nothing you or I can do to earn our salvation. Jesus paid it all. That is not up for debate. It is not being added to. It is not being minimized. Amen? Okay? On the contrary, James is fighting back against those who would minimize the demands of the gospel by saying works are not a necessary result of a changed life. And he's like, absolutely not. It is necessary. You are saved through Jesus, and there should be evidence of it. Theologian J.H. Ropes says, James is not engaged in doctrinal controversy, but is repelling the practical misuse which was made or might be made of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith alone in order to excuse moral laxity. We should never, ever use our salvation, which was poured out on us by the grace of God through his son Jesus Christ, as an excuse to live self-centered lives as an excuse to be like, you know what? I'm good. I'm just going to sit back. That is horrible, okay? If you think that it's all about you and your comfort and your blessings and your status, then you are proving that either you have bad theology or that you are so immature that you are still on spiritual milk, having not yet learned how to properly apply good theology to your life. There is no other alternative here. Either you understand this or you don't. Okay? Saved by grace through Jesus, and there is a response. There is something that happens as a result. As Christians, we have hope as a result of Jesus. This makes us different from those who have not yet received the free gift of salvation. C.S. Lewis explains it like this. The Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They, other people, hope by being good to please God, if there is one, or if they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think 
God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. I, I love theologians, and, and these guys are smart. They have vocabulary that I don't. So how do we apply this? How do we take this biblical truth of faith and works being in an inseparable pair and live it out? Something you're going to be seeing and hearing a lot about over the next 12 months or so is going to be the theme that our youth group will be focused on, which will serve as our reminder that following Jesus takes place every single day. We're told in Luke 10, which was read for us earlier, to love our neighbors. And it's not just the house next door, and it's not just people who happen to wander into this building on a Sunday morning. Okay? So we are going to be consistently aiming a bit bigger. We could aim for, you know, those that are in our same zip code. Okay, it's not a bad idea, but we miss out on a significant number of people. I mean, there's quite a few zip codes represented in this room, okay? The next step out would be to those who potentially share our same area code. That's like a fifth of the state, and it also borders three others. That'll work be t difficult, but it'll work. So what we're going to strive to do is love, pray for, and hopefully find meaningful ways of serving our neighbors in the area code of 563, and we're going to do it every day, 365. And if you're not in middle school and high school and you want to join us, you're welcome to do so. We'll have stickers and, and shirts and stuff like that available too, because we need that reminder that living for Jesus happens every single day. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's not just a, well, I, I went to men's group, or I went to this women's function, and I better act like a Christian now. No, it's every single day. Even when your neighbor is super weird, and you're just like, oh, Jesus loves you, and so do I. Okay? It's hard to follow Jesus, but it's worth it. If you've been with us over the past few months, as Pastor Jeff has been teaching through Hebrews, hopefully you've been encouraged in your faith as you have learned how Jesus is truly better than everything else. And if that's the case, how could you not want to demonstrate that faith through your works? To simply sit here in this room, to hear about the goodness of Christ Jesus, to say you believe it, but not have your life changed in how you speak, how you treat others, how you daily walk with God, demonstrates that your faith is, as James says, useless. Because faith that is not backed up by works is as good as dead. And again, this is James, okay? This is Scripture. This is straight quoted from Scripture. Faith without works is dead. Now, some might claim that this passage that we've looked at this morning isn't as impactful as I'm making it out to be. I mean, after all, couldn't it just be talking about how we're to treat other Christians, you know, I open the door for them when they come into church. You know, see, I, I, I love other Christians most of the time, as long as they agree with me, but, okay? That would certainly make it easier. But my examination of the text, it doesn't lead me to believe that we are limited to only needing to treat fellow Christians with kindness. Now, to be clear, I want you to, to really understand this, okay? There are certainly passages which emphasize the importance of how Christians are to treat other Christians, okay? A big one is John 13, 35, which says, 
well, where Jesus says that people will know that we are his disciples by our love, like by our love for other disciples, okay? When non-believers see Christians, they should see love and not backstab— words are hard— not backstabbing, not infighting, okay? They should see love. But I firmly believe that when James is speaking of brothers and sisters— he is doing so because that's the diatribe, that's the hypothetical, that's the straw man argument he chose in order to incite a reaction from his readers. He is purposefully doing that to get a reaction. The shared truth of this passage, which applies to all people everywhere throughout time, goes beyond just fellow Christians. One need only look at the words of Jesus to see that our Lord consistently directed us to love all people. And if you don't believe me, I encourage you to do a personal study on what we read earlier on the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. 10. Then reach out to me. Hey, we'll have a face-to-face conversation about it. We'll have good discussion. I'll even provide some top-notch coffee, okay? This is worth digging into. This is worth studying, okay? Jesus' opinion on matter of works and faith is not limited to just that parable either. So as we close, we're going to read Matthew 25, 31 through 40. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty, and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, all of it, from the parts that are easy to understand to the parts that are hard, the parts that push us forward, sometimes kicking and screaming to examine what it means to actually believe, to actually follow you. Father, I pray that you will help us to not lay there dead, to live our faith out, to demonstrate it every day to everyone, not just other believers, but to the world at large, so that they can see that there is hope in you. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we pray that you will continue to put opportunities before us to show your love to the world. Amen.